Well, good morning. Let me say uh, happy Father's Day to all of you here today. And uh, some of you have said you've had a hard time figuring out what to buy the perfect father in your household. And just a piece of advice to you, one gift that always goes well is bacon. Go home, fry it up. It's perfect for uh, putting in Ziploc baggies, taking out on a golf course. It's perfect for chips and salsa. It's perfect for, uh, I mean, there's just not a case where bacon isn't good to have. So just, in, just a little advice from Uncle Danny, okay? So happy Father's Day. Let me say welcome to everybody who's on Facebook. Let me say welcome to everybody who's joining us from Urbana this morning. And uh, we are so glad that you are here. We are in this series called The Breakfast Club. And we've been so encouraged because uh, it has really begun to speak to some of our, uh, our past some of our family dynamics, some of the, just our work commitments, different things like that. It's spoken so practically to us that several of you have just come and said, well, this, this is like something I needed to hear right now. And so hopefully it continues to be that today. But we're looking at, uh, of course, the basket case today. And uh, the basket case is, uh, well, it's Allison Reynolds played by Ali Sheedy. Now you, if you think back to this movie or if you've watched this movie, she's She's kind of a little bit of an out, uh, a little bit of an outcast, a little bit of a bystander, somebody who's kind of uh, kind of grabbing the wall more than being out front and everybody else. She's she's peculiar if you think about her from the beginning of the movie. Uh, literally, her dad brings her to school, drops her off, and just drives away right away as soon as she gets out of the vehicle. Begins to speak to maybe a little bit of her own story. She goes in and she uh, she sits to the back of the room and uh, there's that famous scene where she goes to have lunch. She pulls out her sandwich, takes the cold cut and throws it and it sticks against the statue or the wall, you know what I'm saying? And she takes cereal and pixie sticks, crunches it together and that's her sandwich. A little bit odd, uh, not tried that myself, but uh, that's, that's what she does. Uh, then she decides to do some drawing, remember this? And she kind of creates a scene where it looks like it's supposed to be snowing and she scratches her head and fills it with dandruff to make it look like snow. I mean, it's just, just a little bit different than what you're expecting uh, out of this point in the movie. But as the movie goes along, you actually begin to find out some things about her. There's a little more depth than what you realize, and you begin to understand who she is deeper and deeper. You begin to hear that she talks about being neglected and just ignored, growing up in a household that nobody seems to really recognize or care for her. She describes herself as a a pathological liar, and you realize that in some ways it's just to kind of spoof other people to get them to admit things that they wouldn't naturally admit, to kind of draw things out of other people. And she she kind of lives out these extremes to kind of hide how she feels inside. And so we began thinking about, well, what kind, of a, what kind of a character would we think about that? And what we love about Ali Sheedy's character is the transformation that she goes through. Remember, she starts out, and here I'll show a picture in just a second if it will come on the screen. Uh, there's this picture of Ali where she literally uh, is kind of this uh, kind of dressed in black, kind of gothic, kind of uh, peculiar person. And then towards the end of the movie, she actually goes through this transformation where she allows not only the vulnerability of herself to come out, but to allow Molly Ringwald to kind of do a different transformation as she steps out into this environment where they've been hanging out and the way she has perceived herself and the way that others have perceived her begins to be in conflict and they begin to see her perhaps differently than who she is. And maybe, maybe they begin to identify with each other a little bit more, understanding that even beyond the veneer of the extremities and the lies And some of the shocking behavior is somebody deep down inside who really just simply wants to to belong. 
to identify. When we began to think about this, we wrestled with who should we talk about today? Who should we begin to bring up uh, to, 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 that would have an extreme life, would have some sort of situation where they would be considered a basket case? I mean, the truth of the matter is uh, the phrase basket case is not complimentary. If you look it up, uh, maybe online, Google it quickly, you'll get a definition that says a person or thing regarded as useless, unable to cope. Not exactly encouraging. To hear that out loud, we would say, I I don't want to be described as that. But I can admit, there's been a moment or two where I've been uh, a little bit of a basket case, a little bit of a hot mess, where life was overwhelming and I was just stuck. And, well, I was a bit frazzled. When we began to think about who this person might be, we thought of the the character Mary Magdalene. Or Mary of uh, Magdala. Not to be confused with the sinful woman that's uh, expressed in Luke chapter 7. If you've got your Bibles, you can go to Luke chapter 8 because that's where we're going to go today. But to be understood as a, a woman who is transformed from a very dark past to a very bright future. One who was found in complete despair within herself, but found real hope in a relationship with Jesus. Now, how do we know uh, Mary Magdalene. I mean, as a church, we actually, this was who we talked about at Easter. We talked about her moment of despair. We talked about uh, her grieving that was going on in the garden. We talked about this encounter that she had with Jesus. Literally, we talk about how she's kind of frozen in time and she's kind of stuck as she's gone to prepare the body of Jesus and he's not there. The Bible gives a handful of scriptures just to kind of outline who Mary Magdalene is. And there aren't many of them, but when she begins to be described, she is described as, um, as one of the women who were literally at the cross, at the crucifixion of Jesus. She's described as uh, knowing where Jesus was buried, being prepared, and was one that was going to go to the tomb to prepare his body. She's, she's one of the first people, perhaps the first person, that even sees Jesus after the resurrection. And so by being that, she's one of the first eyewitnesses to declare the resurrection of Jesus, which is a, a formidable act. It's, an, it's a great privilege to be the one to begin to declare that Jesus has risen. But she's also known of a, a woman of her own means, her own wealth, her own influence and affluence. And literally, she's known to have been one that helped fuel to financially support the work of Jesus in the ministry of his disciples. What a great gal. That's a great resume. That's a great definition of her. But yet, in Luke chapter 8, we begin to hear where she started. Who she was before she met Jesus is a radically different person. Who she was before she met Jesus was literally someone who was a basket case, unable to cope with her own life. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 8. We begin to think of Mary Magdalene and who she is and who she was, and we know who she becomes, but who was she when Jesus first came into relationship, connected with her? Here's what it says in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says this. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and a village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, meaning the 12 apostles were with him. And also were some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. 
Joanna, the wife of Cusa, uh, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, it's intriguing that Luke actually places this conversation in here as he begins to set up the rest of Luke of uh, chapter 8 uh, of Luke. But Luke is known as being one of the writers of the New Testament who tends to be the most descriptive and the most perhaps intentional about introducing certain details into the craft of the very narrative of Jesus. And what we know is that Luke is preparing to bring Mary Magdalene out to the front at the end of Ghent. But these three verses can simply seem to be background, but you need to understand what's being said, what's being declared, what's being even opened up in these first three words, first three verses, excuse me. First and foremost, we need to see how Mary is described. And Mary is first described as liberated. Mary's first described as liberated. She's one who has been cured of evil spirits. Matter of fact, she had been released of seven demons. Okay? Now, we don't talk a whole lot about uh, demonic oppression or possession. Not that we don't believe in a spiritual battle. We do believe that there is a spiritual battle. We believe in a battle not of flesh or blood, but of principalities and darkness. We would... We would uphold the values of Ephesians chapter 6 and understand that there is something going on well beyond even the physical realm of what we recognize. But when demonic activity is often expressed, specifically in Scripture, it's described usually as oppression, an activity that is beyond our control, that is outside of us, or possession, something that is outside of our control that comes from within us. And Mary is described as one who is possessed. The vision of seven demons gives a, a description. This number seven kind of represents this idea of complete bondage. She's in complete captivity of the evil of her life. She can't live the life that she was created to live. She's helpless. She's harassed. She's tormented in her mind, in her heart, and in her soul. Her life was unlivable in the condition that she was in. But Jesus changes all of it. Now, the truth of the matter is we may talk about demon possession and you go, I, I, don't, I don't get that. I, I, don't, I don't really recognize that. But we all usually understand what it's like to be in bondage. Maybe it's through our, our finances. Maybe it's from our past. Maybe it's choices and behaviors that we've lived out and the consequences have consumed us. We can't forgive ourselves. We can't forgive others. But we've all sensed times in our lives where we've been under attack. Where grief, hardship, the oppression of evil begins to come our direction. And for those of us that are believers, we know that the way that we overcome that is through the power of Jesus. Our understanding of Jesus alive in us, the empowerment of his spirit, that we can be conquerors, can overcome these battles. And Mary is liberated through a relationship with Jesus. But second, Mary is also described as being empowered, liberated and empowered. Mary is also described as someone here who, who actually supports Jesus by her own means. This means that 
Most likely she's some sort of businesswoman, that she has some sort of affluence, she has influence. And so when Christ came into her life, when Jesus intersected her life, she took all that she had, her identity, her career, and she leveraged it back to God. She felt empowered in a way that she would be leveraged for his glory and for his honor. We talked about Luke earlier writing some of these descriptions into this passage And Luke is trying to draw out the credibility, the character of who she is becoming and who she will be for the kingdom to come in the days that will follow. See, in in a context of her day, a, a Jewish rabbi, a teacher of the law, someone who is raising up disciples would not be described in a way of the women who were following, but specifically just the men. But Luke is communicating not only her role, but the leadership of Jesus. And Mary should be seen as an active contributor, one who is fueling, serving, walking along as any other disciple would with a sense of equality and ownership of what God is doing in her life and in her world. You begin to see that she's more than just a, she's not just simply a cheerleader. She's not just somebody standing on the sidelines who's feeling the benefits of knowing a relationship with Christ, but she's contributing towards it. And what we begin to recognize out of Mary is out of the depravity and brokenness of the bondage of sin that has consumed her life, there has been this liberation and understanding that she has purpose and meaning and that the kingdom of God is inviting all people into a relationship with God so that we might leverage our lives in a way that give glory to God and change the world that we're a part of. Not just to make it better or to make it nicer, but to have a world of transformation where God would change the very hearts of men and women, that God would redeem our lives in a way that we would live for his purpose and his honor. And what we begin to realize is this this truth, this big idea, that Jesus transforms the life of the willing. Jesus transforms the life of the willing. Why why would I say that? Why would I begin to play? Because here's kind of the scenario. We've only read the first three verses of what Luke chapter 8 is about. And this becomes a backdrop, almost a visual aid, as Jesus begins to describe a parable. Because a great crowd has gathered and Luke is describing who is surrounding Jesus and people are listening in to understand what this kingdom is going to be about and what this kingdom is going to look like and how this kingdom is going to be leveraged. And there stands in the midst of this crowd, not only the 12 apostles that Jesus has invited and raised up, but people of transformation who have laid down their lives, who embraced a mission of Jesus and have been transformed from darkness into light. And so Jesus begins to describe a parable. Now, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? It's something that we look into that may be everyday common language that has spiritual truth that we can pull out of it. And we often describe a parable as being kind of a window. It's kind of a a frame by which we look into the story. And as we look in, we can see what's happening in front of us. We can recognize the truth that's trying to be applied. But as we step back, we can see in in that glass a reflection of ourself, our own application, Our own understanding of who we are. Here's what it says, starting in verse 5. 
A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on the rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell along among the thorns, which grew up, and it, it choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up, and it yielded a crop a hundred times more than it was sown. Now, now we think about farming today, and, and farming is much different than what happened in Jesus' day, right? We think of large tractors, we think of large equipment, and in Jesus' day, oftentimes you'll see, a, you'll see a drawing, you'll see somebody with kind of a sash, right? They're walking along, and they're kind of throwing grain here and there, they're kind of tossing it across their open areas, and so it's it's not being laid in a specific row. It's being tossed and spread out over a general area. And so people are beginning to understand that there's this idea that there's, there's different areas that e even though the, the, the seed is being thrown out, there are some areas that are going to produce a great uh, crop. There's going to be some areas that there's going to be loss. And Jesus is trying to say, just in the simplicity of this parable, this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. This is how the word of God is going to be received. This is how it's going to look in our lives when the kingdom of God plays out in front of us. And he's intending to encourage people in the room or people in the gathering area that if they, if they can hear this and understand this to respond, if they can see this and recognize this to respond, but yet there are those who aren't quite following along. So he says this in verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes away and takes away the word from their hearts. So that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. But they have no root. They believe for a while. But in the time of testing or hardship... They fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but go on their way. They're choked by life's worries, by life's riches, by life's pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed, the seed on the good soil, the receptive soil, are for those with a noble and good heart. Who hear the word, they retain it, and by persevering, produce a good crop. Now, there's, there's a lot of ways to begin to unpack the entire truth of this parable. A lot, of, a lot of things that we can stop and we can literally pause and say, well, if this soil means this, and if this soil means that, and if that soil means that, and then this soil must mean this. And we can begin to, we can begin to try and figure out and maybe even organize and clarify who's this, who's that. And that's not necessarily the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is for everyone who hears it to recognize the kind of life that produces a good crop. The kind of life that responds back to God. The kind of life that is fully surrendered, willing to allow God to both liberate and empower us for his glory and his honor. The soil that produces and responds 
It is the one that's ultimately transformed by the word of God, transformed by even Jesus himself. It's a heart that's willing to receive it. It's a, it's a, it's a heart that's willing to embrace it. It's a heart that's willing to live it out. And so we begin to think about this, and here's what we understand is Jesus transforms the life that is willing, not the most, and let's just put fill in the blank, right? Because sometimes we can hear a message like this, and we may think, well, well God, God only rewards the, the most popular, or God only rewards the most successful, or the most beautiful. Or sometimes we sing our, swing our pendulum the other direction, right? That God only only works in the life that is the most broken or the most hurting. No, God works in a life that is willing, willing to allow it to be transformed. One that is willing to surrender its will, to give up its life so that God's life might grow in us, change us and transform us. We've been thinking about this a little bit as a staff about what's it look like What's it look like to meet people who are willing to be transformed? And what's it look like to be a person that begins to transform other lives? Because the great story about Mary isn't simply that she was freed from sin and now has life in Jesus, which is true, but that she is freed because of Jesus and empowered and liberated to begin to be the kind of person that frees and liberates and empowers other people to be a part of this kingdom of God. And the question begins to be, what if we become the people who become liberators? What if we become the people that begin to empower others? What if we become the transformed lives that begin to look at our world in a way that we can take who we are and what we are and begin to speak into the generations that are around us, speak into the lives around us. And by the sacrifice of ourselves before God, God may make a significant eternal impact on our lives, on our church, on our community. We have a friend that goes to church here that some of you will know. I, I would want all of you to know him and you're going to get a chance to hear a bit of his testimony today. But there's a non-for-profit that I love within this community. There are several non-for-profits that I like. But I, this is one of them that I really love and it's a, it's a non-for-profit called Lead for Life. Now it is not a Christian organization, okay? It's not, not intended to just be a, a platform to de declare uh, Jesus is Lord, okay? I just need to let you know that. It is a non-for-profit though that has a man who has a, a burden in his heart to step into a community because of what God has done in his life and the hope that he has. And it's begun to empower him in a way that he's begun to not only connect at Franklin Middle School or Jefferson Middle School, he's not only begun to, to work within Centennial High School, God's opened doors for him so that the entire freshman class of Danville High School went through Lead for Life this last year. God has begun to open the doors in Decatur Public Schools so that this man can begin to work and impact and this non-for-profit begin to change communities. And so we thought on Father's Day, what would it look like to share with you a friend, a man, someone who has said, this is all I am and this is all I have. How might we change the world? Would you watch this video? My mom, she had me when she was 14 years old. You know, I was considered to be a mistake baby, you know. 
you know, to this day, I'm over 40 years old and I've never really met my dad. I don't even know my father's real name. I don't know his name. And I look at my life and I'm just thinking that, you know what, even though from the outside, I could have gone anywhere. I could have turned out to be just anything, but it's obvious that there was a purpose and a plan for my life. You know, one of the coolest things I love about Lead for Life is the fact that, you know, I get a chance to like walk into these schools, man. And, you know, I, and, and not even really no kids, you know, but I can see through like what they might be going through. I can see through like their, you know, their pains. I can see through the fact that they may not have, you know, a dad at home or they may not have somebody there that can just, you know what I'm saying, just be there for, you know, who, you know, they, they kids want attention, you know, and although I may not be in a position where, you know, I get to go home with these kids, what I think about is the fact that, you know what, I don't care if I got 15 minutes, I don't care if I got half an hour, I don't care if I just got 45 minutes within a class period of time to be able to just pour into these kids' lives, that's what I'm going to do. We live in a generation now where everything is all about me, me, my, and I. You know, if I don't, if I, I got to get my big car, I got to have my, you know what I'm saying, nice rims. I got to have my big house. It's all about me, my, and I. And the thing about it is that sometimes, somehow, some way, we've kind of lost sight on what really matters the most. What is the biggest thing? Well, you know, the, the, the biggest thing is really our children. And somehow we've, we've allowed other things to come before that. And there's so many kids right now that are lost. You know, there's, there's, you know, you get, you get situations where, you know, because of the instant access that they have to just about anything on their cell phones, it's like they can go into their own little world. It, it's, it's time that we, we, we just stop conforming to the things that is just not right and just be able to just say that, you know what, you were, you were not born by mistake. You were born for a reason. And the reason why I can identify to that is because I know that I wasn't born by mistake. Even though my mom had me at 14, I still wasn't born by mistake. In the same way that I had purpose for my life, I believe that these, anybody that's walking the face of this earth, you got purpose too. We got to make sure that we feed into young people's lives because now is the time. Now is the time that we got to be able to just step in because if we don't begin to just, you know what I'm saying, plant those seeds of hope, plant those seeds of knowledge, plant the seeds of education. If we don't begin to plant the seed to be able to help people to understand that, you know what, now is the time and our days are getting shorter because there's all kind of craziness that's going on in this world. I'm telling you, now is the time. We can't wait. You know what I'm saying? We as people, we got to begin to pour in. We got to get outside of ourselves. We got to let selfishness go. We got to get ourselves to a place to where we be able to look at kids. And I'm not just talking about your own kids. I'm talking about any kid. Now is the time. I don't care what we might be going through. Now is the time. We got to pour in, pour in love, pour in hope, pour in faith, pour in education, pour in everything that we, that we have to our souls. I mean, just we just got to pour in because now we're at a point to where their lives are dependent on. We got to pour in.
That's powerful, isn't it? And there are days like today where maybe we need to pause and be reminded that the gospel has that kind of potency. Hide it under a bushel? No, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Remember those things we, we said as children? I'm so thankful for men like Javay. I'm so thankful for, for men who have said, you know what, this, this is not a dream about me, this is a dream about others. And I think that portrait, that portrait that's beginning to be painted in Luke chapter 8 is of the kingdom of God reaching everyone. And you think about our church. Our church has been known for years for its children's ministry, for its students' ministry. But there is more that can be done. There are students of all shapes and sizes, all different backgrounds, all different relationships that should be coming to church here that we have yet to reach. More than simply the athlete, more than simply the affluent, more than simply somebody who looks like me. We need to be reaching into our communities and taking this hope to the world. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is our, our soil receptive to producing a crop that God would want? I mean, think about our hearts for a moment. Think about who we might be able to be. Think, think what God is doing. Some of us, we listen to those soils and we know that's us. Life is choking us out. Life has our, hard heart, our heart hardened. Life uh, is just winning the day. And, and maybe we're sitting here today going, okay, I, I want God to be more in my life. But the truth of the matter is, is it's very difficult, very difficult to be transformed by God when our heart says, no thanks. When our mind says, I know better, Right? And maybe that's why Mary is so powerful in this portrait because it's oftentimes those of us that have been completely destroyed by life that go, there's no way up but through God. What might it look like for those of us who have begun to know who Christ is, who's begun to experience the power of his spirit, that know that the seed, the word of God, is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ planted firmly in our hearts, providing forgiveness of sins and a life that's everlasting. What if we might become those people that would live in a way that would both liberate the world around us and empower the world to a life of God's glory and God's honor? Let's move to a time of response. I think for many of us, there are opportunities for us when we, we, we think about what God wants to do in our lives and we, we evaluate because by, by the world that's around us, right? My life's a little bit better than the person next to us. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, if you remember me last year, I was like, and here's what I want, to, I want to do for you today. Is I want to take the lens of comparison off of your eyes and put on some glasses of surrender. What would it look like for us if instead of trying to measure what everybody else has and we don't have, what if instead of measuring uh, how bold we are with our faith or not with our faith, what if instead of measuring what... Uh, 
what's good in this world or badness. What if we just began to look at our lives and let's just, what does it look like for me to be surrendered before God? Those glasses are dangerous to put on. Those glasses are dangerous because um, dads, it may cause us to be more vulnerable in front of the people around us that are closest to us. Dads, it may, it may cause us to, to rearrange some of our, our schedule and our routine. Moms, it may cause us to quiet the anxiety of our hearts, the worries of our minds. But what if collectively, like Mary, consumed in the bondage of the world of sin, when we surrendered our life to Christ through baptism, what if like Mary, we put on glasses that said, what could the world look like if I just surrendered? There are some of you in this, world, in this room today that maybe need to make a decision of faith to, to maybe accept Christ. You, you kind of do the church thing. You state that you believe and you, you like being a part of the time of singing. You like being a part of the time of, of teaching. You, as a matter of fact, you may even be in part of our groups, but you know in your heart of hearts you've never surrendered your life back to God. And maybe, maybe today is that day to sit down and make that decision. Maybe today is that decision to stop and say, I, I need to be baptized. I've I've kept myself away from that. If I was to be honest with myself to fully surrender, I would, I would submit to being baptized, to giving my life over to Christ publicly and just declaring my life is not my own, but it's God's. But for all of us, we're going to be invited into a time of response. And as we think about this moment, there will be some of us that will come forward and pause for a time of prayer. They'll come to these benches up front, and there'll be people who will... Uh, go to these tables. They'll eat the bread and they'll drink the juice and they'll be reminded it was Jesus' body that was broken. It was his blood that was shed. And as they eat the bread and they drink the juice, they'll be reminded that that is, that is the life transforming power of their life. That only through a relationship with Jesus Christ can we be free. And then there'll be those of us that Maybe we write something of prayer on a connection card. Maybe we write our decision on our connection card and we go to one of the response boxes, the offering boxes around the room and we'll place it in there and we'll have a conversation. We'll follow up this week with you and help you take those next steps. And then, of course, there are those of us that will, like Mary, we will fuel the mission of Jesus. And by our own means whether by giving through the offering boxes or through the Give app, we're, we're going to surrender more of ourselves so that others might know. But whatever God does in this moment and whatever God does in our hearts, would we be willing to live a day-to-day where our glasses are firmly put on our face and from the moment we go to lunch today, from the moment that we, we sit down and watch a, a golf tournament, from the moment that we stop and show up at work, from the moment we go to do that business transaction, from the moment that we go to talk to our children, from the moment that we begin to lay our head down on our pillow, would we have those glasses on and just ask the question, what would it look like to have a heart that's willing? 
fully surrendered to see the world as an opportunity of God, what might we be able to do for you? Let's stand. Let's sing.